This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Every now and then, not too often, there's a topic that I think is so important that I want to give it as wide an audience as possible. So, I used it for my sermon on Shabbat, my podcast, and my column. The issue I want to discuss this week fits that bill. This past Monday marked the 25th yard site of Yitzhak Rabin, who was killed 26 years ago on the 12th of Cheshvan, 5756. The secular anniversary of his assassination will be observed two weeks from yesterday, on Thursday, November 4th. I spoke about it last Shabbat, and it'll be the subject of my Jewish Standard column next Friday. Today, it's the subject of this podcast. And so, the topic for this week is what the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin should have taught us, but did not. I'll begin with a question. Who was it who killed Yitzhak Rabin? The question would seem inane, but it's not because the answer to it can have a profound impact on the futures of Israel and the Jewish people. This isn't a mystery story in the Oswald Kennedy sense. We've known the answer for all the last 26 years. In fact, we've known the answer from almost the moment the murder took place on that black night in Tel Aviv in November 1995. Yigal Amir killed Yitzhak Rabin. He admitted it, proudly and confidently, and even today, 26 years later, without a trace of remorse. The question, however, goes beyond who pulled the trigger. The question must also include who encouraged it. The very uncomfortable answer is that we all did. We all encouraged Yigal Amir to stalk Yitzhak Rabin and, at the fortuitous moment, to pull the trigger that ended Rabin's life. How are we all involved? Because we, all of us, left, right, and center, Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist, and secular, Zionist, non-Zionist, and anti-Zionist, all of us did very little to defend Jewish values from the day when Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin and the late Palestinian Liberation Organization Chairman Yasser Arafat shook hands in the White House Rose Garden in September 1993, to that tragic Saturday night a little over two years later. We, all of us, allowed the level of debate in the Jewish world over the mutual recognition agreement they signed in the Rose Garden that September day to reach beyond the acrimonious to the ominous. Let a leader rise up in Israel, like Rabin and the late Shimon Peres, who advocates peace with the Palestinians and seeks a two-state solution, and that person will be demonized, vilified, made the object of prayers for his or her death. Forget the peace process, though. It's for the moment only. Sooner or later, either the process will resume or it won't. If it resumes at some point, it eventually will end, either successfully or not. We, however, we, Am Yisrael, the people Israel, 
We're not for the moment only. We are here for eternity. God said as much in making a covenant with Abraham, as we heard in the Torah reading last Shabbat. Quote, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you for their generations as an eternal covenant. Unquote. We are here for eternity. God says this over and again in so many ways from Abraham on. We're not for the moment. We're meant to be forever. But there is a catch to that. We are forever. But only if we live up to that covenant. A far more lasting consequence than a peace process, therefore, is the abuse of the values and ethics of Judaism an abuse that took place 26 years ago as we remained much too passive and that to some degree continues to take place even today, over a quarter of a century later. God didn't call Abraham, as we read last Shabbat, and tell him, quote, leave your land, your birthplace, and your father's house, unquote, because God had nothing else to do that day. God didn't make a covenant with Abraham and through him with Israel, as we read last week and will again read tomorrow, for us to act like everyone else. As I've said before in these podcasts, we're God's answer to the flood. After the great flood was over, and only Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, and a small representative sampling of animals and birds had survived, God vowed never again to destroy the world. Ten generations later, when morality and ethics had sunk into the oblivion they had sunk into before the flood, God needed a different solution. We are that solution. As we'll hear God say in tomorrow's Torah reading, God chose Abraham because Abraham was supposed to teach his children, he was supposed to teach us, to do tzedakah umishpat, do what is righteous and just. God chose Abraham to found Am Yisrael, the people Israel, so that it, so that we, would be his nation of priests of the world, to show the world by the manner of our existence that there is a nobler path and that there are great rewards for those who trod that nobler path. God's gift to Israel, God's eternal covenant with us, was not gratuitous. It involved, and still involves, a quid pro quo. To do tzedakah umishpat, to do what is righteous and just, and to teach the world how to do what's righteous and just. Among our most cherished values are civil speech, tempered dialogue, and moderate behavior. There's good reason why sins committed through speech comprise better than one-fourth of all the al-hates we recited over and again on Yom Kippur. Yet when we, the Jewish communities of the United States, rallied for or against the peace process in the period leading up to that dark night in 1995, we rallied for the wrong reason. We should have been rallying against the violation of these values and against the violators. When a Brooklyn rabbi declared only weeks before the assassination that it was permissible under Jewish law to assassinate Yitzhak Abim, and even the late Shimon Peres as well, 
we should have gone by the busload to protest outside his home and synagogue. Yet there were no such protests, not from any quarter, including my own. I wrote about it in my Jewish Standard column, but that's all that I did. The month before the assassination, some radical Orthodox rabbis distributed a prayer to be said three times a day as part of the daily Amidah that called Rabin and Paris, quote, destroyers and spoilers, unquote, and asked God to, quote, protect us and save us, unquote, from them. These radical Orthodox rabbis included a rabbi in Tinek, where I lived at the time, he and I almost came to blows outside our local JCC one day, not too long after the assassination, but the shouting match we engaged in was the extent of what I did. We should have sat in at the offices of mainstream rabbinical organizations until they agreed to speak out against the recitation of such hate-filled trash, but no one did. Right-leaning Anglo-Jewish newspapers published barefaced lies and vitriolic commentary with abandon. We should have organized against those publications that claim to speak for our communities, but which violate every principle we hold sacred and dear. But we didn't. Whenever we heard someone call Yitzhak Rabin a traitor with the blood of 160 victims of terror on his hands, that was the number in late 1995, it's closer to 1,500 today. When we heard someone call Rabin a traitor with the blood of terror victims on his hands, we should have praised Rabin as a patriot whose actions, regardless of whether we agreed with them, came from a sincere desire to end the cycle of bloodshed in the Middle East. We should have done many things, but we did nothing. Make no mistake about it. The murder of Yitzhak Rabin wasn't like most political assassinations in history. It was like only one. The murder of a man named Gedalia ben Achikam 2,600 years ago. He was the man the Babylonians put in charge of the defeated kingdom of Judah. Was this Gedalia a good man or a bad man? Was he a Jewish patriot or a Jewish traitor? We don't really know. We think Gedalia came from a family devoted to the line of David, and he may even have served the kings of Judah in an official capacity. We think he was devoted to the God of Israel and God's people, but we don't know. We don't know whether he was good for the Jews or bad for the Jews. All we know for certain is that somewhere around 2,600 years ago, a religious fanatic named Yishmael ben Netanyahu murdered Gedalia ben Achikam, ostensibly in the name of God. There's an irony in the assassin's name, as I'm sure you noted, because another ben Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu by name, helped stoke the hatred against Rabin. In July 1995, just a few months before the assassination, Bibi, as he likes to be called, led a mock funeral procession featuring a coffin and a hangman's noose at an anti-Rabin rally where protesters chanted, Death to Rabin. When Shin Bet chief Karmi Gilon warned Bibi that there was a plot on Rabin's life and urged him to help tone down the hateful rhetoric he and others were using, Bibi refused to do so. 
He later denied that he ever intended to incite violence. He ended up being Israel's longest-serving prime minister to date, and he still hopes to return to that office in the near future. What we do know about Gedalia's assassination is this. After he was murdered, life did not go on for the Jews. That murder began a process that, within five years, led to the expulsion of the Jews from our sacred homeland and the beginning of an exile that, for the majority of Jews, has continued from that day to this. It's for this reason that, long before our sages of blessed memory came into existence, the people of Israel already annually marked the day of that murder by fasting and with prayer. To this day, the third of Tishrei, the day after Rosh Hashanah, is known as Som Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia. By all rights, the story of the Jewish people should have come to an end when that first exile began. Everything we were was rooted in the land. Our identity, our culture, our sacred traditions, our modes of worship, even God's promises to Abraham and to us. Other people faced with a similar fate disappeared from history. The murder of Gedalia on the 3rd of Tishrei 2,600 years ago should have led to our extinction. But we survived. We had Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and many people whose names we don't know, prophets of God and men of vision who were filled with Ahavat Yisrael with love for the people of Israel. They wouldn't let us shrivel and die, and we didn't. As it was with the murder of Gedalia ben Achikam, so it is with the murder of Yitzhak ben Nehemiah. The historians of another century, God forbid, may look back on the 12th of Cheshvan, 5756, and see that on that day there began an equally tragic process that will be mourned for thousands of years to come, assuming, that is, that there will be any of us left to mourn. For today, there is no Jeremiah, there is no Ezekiel, there is no Zechariah. There are no visionary leaders who can rise above their individual beliefs to turn tragedy into triumph. If they do exist, they haven't yet shown themselves to us. There need not be a Tzom Yitzchak, a fast of Yitzhak. There is time for the Jewish people, in Israel and out, Orthodox, Conservative, Reform, Reconstructionist, and Secular, peace now or peace later, or even peace never, to come together. There is time, but as yet there are few signs that this is possible. We saw that in the last Israeli election. We even saw it in our presidential politics over the last four years or so. Jews supported a president who encouraged virulent anti-Semites to come out of their dark holes, bringing with them some of the worst years of anti-Semitic violence in this country's history. But they supported that president, and they still support him, because he was opposed to the peace process and a two-state solution. The tragedy of 26 years ago can still become a catalyst for change. The gun that killed Yitzhak Wabin need not be the starter pistol for disaster. But first, all of us must be willing to let go of our arrogance and our triumphalism. All of us must be willing to admit 
that no one of us has all the answers, and that the answers coming from the other side may be as valid as our own. Arrogance and triumphalism led one Jew to kill another in the name of God, 2,600 years ago and again 26 years ago. And who and what we are as a people have been shaken to the core. All of us must recognize that Judaism is not one thing or the other. Judaism is everything together. It's religion. It's nationality. It's a system of values and ethics. It's a way of living. It's an approach to God. It's the strict constructionism of Shammai and the reformist liberalism of Hillel in Talmudic times. Did our collective inertia play a part in the killing of Yitzhak Rabin 26 years ago? Sadly, the answer is yes. The only question is the extent of our guilt. We still haven't confronted that question in the 26 years that have passed since the 12th of Cheshvan, 57-56, November 4th, 1995. If we don't confront it soon, both from our sectarian perspectives and as a community as a whole, and if we don't act upon what we learn about it, we'll have only ourselves to blame for the consequences. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, www.shamai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish Standard but want to read my columns, go to the column page of my website. Shabbat Shalom, stay healthy, and stay safe.